Would you please turn your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6? And this morning, we will be moving along in our study, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 5, Lord willing. As, uh, what was that number again? Oh, 1218, okay. Well, 0218. I'm thankful to Caleb for putting this together for us. No more cords that break. So, we've got Wi-Fi going on, and hopefully I won't spend the entire sermon explaining the Bible to you and not knowing that it's not up on the screen. So, that was a little interesting yesterday, or last Sunday. All right. Before I get started here this morning in the Word, I wanted to just let you know a couple of things, two things. One... Um, I'm going to be studying often away from the building, so I want you to know that in case you come here and are looking for me and I'm not here, like, where is the pastor, you know, supposed to be at the building. So if you need to talk with me, please feel free to call my phone, text me, and I'll get back with you as soon as possible. I just want to let you know that, um, that I will be continuing my work, but not at the building presently. And then secondly, I want to also let you know that Lion and I will be headed down to Kentucky tomorrow morning. We'll be gone until Thursday evening, and uh, we're, we're going to uh, have the opportunity to hear our, our old pastor, John MacArthur, share the word on Tuesday night. There's an evening with John MacArthur. He's 82 now, and I don't know that I'll get to hear him in person again, so we're taking advantage of this. Lord willing, I hope he's around for a long time more, but we'll see what the Lord has, so we're excited about that. And um, Darren will be leading the the corporate prayer meeting on Wednesday evening, and then Jeremy Hensley will be sharing that we're with us next Sunday. So that will be a wonderful time. Please be praying for them, and, and uh, you know, you'll be ministered by them well. Yes, there's growth group after service today. Right away, we'll have a lunch time from 12 to 1, and then growth groups discussion and prayer from 1 to 2. So you're welcome to join us for that. Well, this morning we're coming to this text here, 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. through 5. Would you stand with me one more time? Let's read this section of Scripture together in unison. And then I'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our study of it. Let's read the Word of God together. 1 Timothy 6, and verses, verses 3-5. through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for texts that warn us. Thank You for inspiring Your Word through the instrument of the Apostle Paul to help us to be on guard for those who would teach something different than sound doctrine. And not only to be on guard of following a false teacher, but also, Father, thank You that we have the warnings here needful to guard ourselves by Your grace, against coming to mirror the profile of a false teacher ourselves. Father, we are not sufficient for that. 
You want us to guard ourselves. You want us to be warned, but we depend upon You and You alone to provide the spiritual discernment, the awareness, and the humility to remain faithful to the Gospel. Father, please protect our church family. May we never come to be what we see here in this text. And may we never come to follow what we see in this text. Please be glorified, Father, in keeping us from the evil one. Please be glorified in sanctifying us through the truth. Your Word is truth. Father, my heart trembles at the thought of what could happen What has happened to so many churches before us, including the Ephesian church. Father, I beg You that You would keep us from it. and Keep us nourished in the truth and growing in the truth. May we never become lax. May we never be presumptive. May we always be watchful and careful in the power of the Holy Spirit energized by the risen Christ who is interceding for us and has promised to save us to the uttermost. And so we look to Him and depend upon Him and it's His his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This this text we come to this morning is one of Paul's warning texts. Warning texts are important. In First Corinthians or in Colossians chapter one, verses twenty-eight, twenty-nine, the apostle Paul talks about his warning texts, and he says, "Him we proclaim." This is Paul's mission statement. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone. That's. That's an important thing in itself to get a handle on. That it is important to warn of false teaching and of false teachers and to be warned about them. The Apostle Paul's ministry statement included both warning everyone and teaching everyone. Why is it important to come to warning texts and do them justice? Because Paul says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you want to be presented mature in Christ, then you will come to these warning texts and receive them well. These are important for the life of our body. And Paul says he does this toiling, struggling with all of Christ's energy that powerfully works within him. You know, you can you can think of this so very clearly as you as parents and grandparents, uncles and aunts, you interact with children, and remember being a child yourself and how important warning is in child raising, right? It's not just the importance of positively knowing what to do. It's also very important to know what to avoid. That is essential to instruction that results in maturity. I want you to notice the conditional clause that begins this text. Paul writes here in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, if anyone teaches, that conditional clause could likewise be stated or written 
since someone is teaching a different doctrine. That's important to notice because what Paul is addressing here in this text isn't hypothetical. It isn't an if. It's, It's the way it is for the Ephesian church presently. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. And you can, we've already tracked this sort of uh, history of the Ephesian church. We remember in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32, Paul was about to leave having planted the Ephesian church. And he says to them, to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Why does Paul say that? Verse 28, Acts 20, 28, 28, verse 29 now. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there's the threat of of false teachers coming into a church from the outside. But that's not all. Paul continues in verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's men that can arise up within a solid church, an orthodox church, who for personal craving, for control, power, applause, praise, can begin to draw people after themselves by twisting doctrine and creating division. Therefore be alert, Paul says, and remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In 1 Timothy 1, 3-11, we find the Apostle Paul, we've already looked through those texts months ago, we find the Apostle Paul charging Timothy to make sure no one teaches a doctrine differently than what he has delivered. Make sure, Timothy, don't allow anyone to teach anything different. In fact, it's so easy to take the law of God and to teach it unlawfully. Teach it as the means of becoming righteous before God rather than having our sin exposed in order that we may go to Christ. And then the end of chapter 1, we've noticed already that Verses 18 and 20, that Paul even did church discipline on a couple of false teachers that had come in to influence the Ephesian church. We also noticed in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, again, there the Apostle Paul calls Timothy to be aware of false teachers, those who will depart from the faith, devote themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. And again, promote legalistic behavior. And so now this morning, we come to the next text in the letter of 1 Timothy where Paul is dealing with false teachers. So this is, this is a text that we need to take to heart as well. We who are members of this local church. And as I prayed earlier, may the Lord deliver us from following, taking the path of the Ephesian church. Do you sense the urgency of this text? Maybe not yet. We'll go through it. But do you sense the urgency of remaining guarded 
with what is being taught so that our church does not wander off into false doctrine? That can happen to any church, dear ones. There's a great urgency here with this. We need not presume that we have a special corner on understanding and walking in truth. That corner does not belong to us. We need to be guarded and hear Paul exhorting us as he did his beloved Ephesian church. Even as we think through this text this morning, it will be easy to apply it to someone outside of ourselves. That's the first thing that usually comes to mind when we go through texts like this. Oh yeah, that denomination. Oh yeah, that internet teacher. Oh, that one guy I see on TBN. It's so easy to apply texts like this that way, isn't it? And there's some, there's some value to that because there are false teachers in the world. There's in the church at large in America, for sure. That's important to do, but more important than that, we must apply it to ourselves first. This text is for us. It's delivered to us to enable us to be watchful over ourselves so that we do not begin to fit the profile of a false teacher ourselves. That's the point. And so the main idea of these, these three verses this morning, the members of God's household must be keenly aware of the profile of a false teacher. Why? <clears throat> so that they can be guarded against following one or becoming like one. Now, the question that Paul answers in this text for us is, what is the profile of a false teacher? What is the profile? Let's look at this together today. Number one, you can follow along in your outline that I provide for you. Number one, the false teacher's attitude. This is verses 3-4a. through 4a. You'll notice that the sentence ends right here. So from the beginning of verse 3, verse 3, down to the first part of verse 4 is that first sentence that describes the attitude of the false teacher. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, to capture what Paul is communicating in this verse, you need to find the main subject and verb. And in this sentence, it's at the end of it. It's not at the beginning. So the main thought, the main subject that, that Paul is communicating as he's describing a false teacher is this right here. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And the rest of what we see here in verse 3 describes his being puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. So really, and you can see this in your outline, I think I put the attitude right under the point. The false teacher's attitude is conceited ignorance. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Conceited ignorance. That's how Paul describes the false teacher. This word conceit is very interesting. We've come across it already in, I believe, the qualifications of an elder that he should not be conceited. This word literally means to raise smoke, to wrap up in a mist. Picture a guy with just, just walking around with a big cloud of smoke around his head. He, he's, he's 
puffed up. He's beclouded and blinded by his own pride. So that he's actually rendered foolish, stupid, insolent by his pride. We might say it this way in our, in our terminology. He's walking around with his head in the clouds. He doesn't see the needs around him. He doesn't understand reality. He's just walking around with his head in the clouds. That's this word, conceited. He's so filled with himself that he can't see past the end of his nose. Right? That is another phrase. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the attitude of the false teacher. He's conceited. He's so filled with himself, with his own thoughts, his own words, his own desires, his own influence, his own profit, his own reputation, his own applause, his own feelings. And that kind of conceit renders him to be ignorant. I mean, consider the weight of what Paul says there. He understands what? Nothing. He understands nothing. When someone is so filled with themselves that all, that's all they are consumed with, it makes them ignorant. He understands nothing. Now the question is here, how did the false teacher get that way? Or another way to ask it that will deliver the same answer is what does this conceited ignorance look like in this man's life? Well, Paul mentions three areas of the, the, the false teacher's ministry in which his, his conceited ignorance is plainly evident. Here's where the verse 3 unfolds for us. First of all, he teaches different doctrine. That's the first thing. And that's referring to the content of their teaching. He teaches different doctrines. Second, He does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the second thing. That's that's the denials of His teaching. And then third is right here. that he He disagrees or does not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. That's verse 3, or or part 3 of description of His conceited ignorance. That's the product of His teaching. It's not godliness, it's what? ungodliness that results from his teaching. So let's look at each of these three. First, the content of the teaching. He teaches a different doctrine. Different than what is in the Scriptures. Different than what the apostles have given to us. Different than what God has inspired. They teach, maybe they teach some of what's in the Bible, but then they use the Bible as a springboard to talk about all kinds of things that are not in the Scriptures, and that different doctrine is really the substance of their teaching. They add human thoughts to the teachings of Scripture, or maybe they teach in a realm of thought that is entirely foreign to Scripture. They ignore the Bible altogether in their teaching, maybe. The teaching of a false teacher does not, and here's such an important thing for us to understand, the teaching of a false teacher does not follow closely the words, the thoughts, the logic, the applications, the purposes of Scripture. If it uses it at all, it's just a springboard to get to his own thoughts, his other teaching. 
What they teach is different from the Bible. What they teach comes from their own minds or the mind of another false teacher. And you'll certainly notice this different doctrine when they speak about God, man, salvation. When they describe God, what God is like and and what He does, it's very different than the one revealed in the Scriptures. For example, their God doesn't seem to have the divine emotions of holy love for Himself and His creation, and therefore doesn't seem to have a holy hatred for sin. Have you noticed that? Or their God can't seem to exercise perfect justice and send people to hell for their lawless rebellion. That's a favorite doctrine to cut out. Or their God is not sovereign over all things. Instead, He seems to be on an equal playing field with the forces of evil and human will. Have you noticed that? Their God can't seem to turn human evil and suffering for for human good and His glory. Their God can't seem to enable His people to live holy lives, so He doesn't really care about our being holy as He is holy, and so on. You could just go on and on describing the God of different doctrine. When they describe the nature and abilities of man, it's very different from the doctrine or teaching of apostles and prophets and the Word of God. Some might say that human beings are basically good in nature and that God is happy with us, generally speaking. That most people, if not anyone, has a basic ability and bent to do what is right and pleasing to God, just naturally. That a person will choose rightly as long as they're given the right education and the right opportunity. That each person is self-determining and should be allowed to believe what they want to believe and express themselves however they think is best. That there's no need for reconciliation with God. That each person just needs to realize that they are already one with God and simply need to unlock their own potential from within and avoid inner conflict and outer conflict. When you think through what's being taught out there about the nature of God and man, it's so different, so foreign to what you find in the Scriptures. It's because it comes from the mouth of a false teacher. When the false teacher describes salvation, it's very different than the Gospel recorded for us in Scripture. They might say that we participate with God in our own salvation by by moral and religious things that we do. Others might say that salvation is largely about being healthy and wealthy and prosperous in this life. Salvation can be lost, some say. Some say that salvation is about becoming a God ourselves. Some say that salvation is rising to a higher life form through reincarnation. And it goes on and on and on. There's nothing, think about it this way though, here's the point. There is nothing more conceited and ignorant than to think that you can teach people about God, about man, and about salvation, and answer the ultimate questions of life and eternity without the Scriptures. From a place of different doctrine. That is ultimate arrogance and ignorance. That's the height of conceit and ignorance. And and what may be closer to home for us, that, that some of these 
different doctrines that I have alluded to than, than some of these that we've gone through are, dear ones, listen, all of the spiritual teachings through books or songs or online videos or sermons or podcasts that that speak about God, and they speak about man, and they speak about salvation, the Christian life, but they use words and concepts and expressions that may appeal to our thinking, desires, feelings, emotions, and experiences, or those of the culture. But when they speak, their words, their concepts are disconnected from the Scripture. It's like they're foreign to the words, thoughts, and logic and flow of Scripture. Have you noticed this? I want to communicate this so clearly. Sometimes you'll pick up a book and they're talking about the Christian experience and it's like, I can't really even follow it. This is not from Scripture. Nothing particularly wrong with it that I can find, it, but it, but it's, it doesn't sound like the Word of God. It doesn't follow the words and flow and logic and concepts of the Bible. So disconnected from how the Bible explains it. And maybe you find it then hard to track and coming to the same conclusions. Yeah, it may be appealing emotionally, or you could relate to the stories, but you were spiritually disoriented when it came to applying the information to your worship of God or your daily pursuit of a holy life. It just, I continue to come in contact with spiritual religious information that. Someone may read to me, and it's like, where in the Bible is that? It's not. It's disconnected. It's other than the Bible. And you see, so many people today are writing books and songs and speaking about God, man, salvation, out of their own experiences, instead of by close connection to the words and concepts and logic of Scripture. Again, I say this is to be conceded. And without understanding. It's to teach something other than the doctrines and the, of the apostles in the Scripture. And so, dear brothers and sisters, if we think that we could never be guilty of such things, let us be warned. Each of us. When we teach and disciple others, what must we do? We must bind ourselves to the words and thoughts and concepts and logic and doctrines of the Scriptures. Let's not grow conceited and think that we can start spouting spiritual thoughts independently of Scripture. That sort of free speaking will inevitably lead us into dangerous ignorance and lead to spiritual damage. When you speak of ultimate truth, bind your words to the words of Scripture and don't speak other teaching. This will guard you against taking on the profile of a false teacher. And think of it this way. Our thoughts, our experiences are not inspired of God. They are not inerrant and powerful to change lives and produce godliness. But the Word of God is. The Bible is. And so by the power of the ascended and risen Christ, may He keep us from that. From teaching different. Doctrine. Secondly, the second mark evidences the false teachers' considered ignorance, the denials of their teaching. Notice what Paul says does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the false teacher does not agree with, does not assent to. Sound words. Healthy words. The words that are unmixed with error. Words that produce spiritual life and health. What words are those? The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the full title of Christ. And it communicates His ultimate power and authority. (coughs) The Lord Jesus Christ is the divinely anointed Messiah, Savior, Prophet, Priest, King, Lord of all who has spoken. He's spoken through His personally chosen apostles. The words of ultimate truth. The words of the eternal Gospel once and for all handed down and delivered to the saints. And it is these words that the false teacher disagrees with. Can you believe it? <laughs> when, you, when you put those words right together, you look at them, he disagrees with the, the spiritually healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The false teacher disagrees with the ultimate authoritative source of truth. false teacher not only ignores, but disagrees with the one, the one book in the whole world that is inspired by God, inerrant in its parts and totality, and inherently contains the power and authority of Christ. If that isn't conceited ignorance, I don't know what is. You're going to disagree with the words of the sovereign of the universe? And of course, this section, as we consider the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and how He disagrees with with these, this powerfully implies the doctrine of inspiration that God breathed. The Scripture is the outbreathing of God. It is therefore inerrant because God cannot lie. It is authoritative because it is His Word. The sound doctrine of Christ is the Scripture which is the breath of God. The truth of God. The authority of God Himself who exalts above all things His name and His Word. And the false teacher says something other than the Word. And the false teacher says some things denying that Word. That's the pinnacle of conceit and ignorance. For example, the false teacher may deny the doctrine of the Trinity. There's many that do. Deny the doctrine of the virgin birth or the true deity or real humanity of Christ or the personhood of the Holy Spirit, or substitutionary atonement, or eternality of hell, and so on. But what they're doing is denying the words of the One who sits on the throne of heaven and reigns supreme as Lord of Lords. That's the height of conceit and ignorance. So as I look at your faces today and we consider our church, my heart says, Father, please keep us from denying even the smallest part of the Scriptures. Any of it. Who are we to deny any part of the words of Him who sits on the throne? Now Paul gives a third evidence of the conceit and ignorance of false teachers. He speaks of the product of their teaching. He does not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. Doesn't agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness, what's godliness? Godliness is to honor God. To have honor for God and holiness in life. 
Godliness is about your worship and your walk. You have reverence for God. And you desire to obey Him in life. You're mindful of God in your life. Desiring to honor Him and submit to Him. The accurate teaching of the Scriptures, the accurate teaching of the Scriptures and the true Gospel will produce godliness in the lives of its hearers as they are believers. It changes us, doesn't it? That's why we gather around the Word and unleash it. Because we don't, we, this isn't just an exercise of intellect and information. We come around these words every time, pleading with God and hoping that the, the living and active, powerful Word of God will have its effect on us, in spite of us, that it will change us. The way we think, the way we live, the way we love, the way we serve. That's what it does. Hebrews 4.12, right? The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. It lays us bare before Him with whom we have to do. That's our hope every time we come. God, sanctify us in Your truth. Your Word is truth. That's, that's what Scriptures do. That's what the Gospel does. That's what the words of our Lord Jesus Christ do. How can they not? In the beginning, they created the heavens and the earth, and in time, they create new spiritual life and sustain the spiritual life we have. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what is this word? The power of God. It's the power of God to those who are what? Being saved. That's what the Word of God does. It saves us from the practice of our sin. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 28, or 27 and 28. No, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. I knew I was going to get it right sometime. It says that we with an unveiled face behold in, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we're being changed from one level of glory to another by the Spirit of the Lord. We gaze into the Word of God and we see the image of Christ. It is the Word of God and how it reveals Christ to us that changes us. It is powerful. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 7 speaks of the same thing. Brothers, chosen of God, our word came to you not only in word, but in spirit and in power with full conviction, and you became imitators of us. You see, that's what the Word of God does. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 say the same thing. When you receive the Word of God, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, what? The Word of God that is what? At work in you believers. That's why we come around the Word. But the false teacher, what about him? disagrees with the teaching that accords with or affirms or results in godliness because in conceited ignorance, he teaches something else. Teaches another doctrine. He denies the sound words of Christ. Therefore, his teaching produces not godliness, it produces ungodliness. 
in his own life and in the lives of those who follow his teaching. So the, the teaching of the false teacher produces ungodliness. So let us examine our own teaching in this regard. What about our teaching? Does our teaching lead to greater reverence for God? Or does it cause us to think less of God? That's the first step away. Does our teaching lead to conviction of sin? Does our teaching lead to dependence upon Christ's saving and sanctifying power? Does our teaching lead to holy living? Or does it seem to ignore the need for repentance, for faith in Christ, for growth and godliness? Where does our teaching lead us? Dear brothers and sisters, by the preserving power of Christ, may our teaching produce godliness in us because it is anchored to and bound to the living, active Word of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in summary, the first aspect of the false teacher's profile is conceited ignorance. And that conceited ignorance is evident in the way that he or she, nowadays, teaches other doctrine, denies the sound words of Christ, and produces ungodliness from his or her teaching. Now Paul gives us a second aspect of the false teacher's profile. Number two, the false teacher's desire. This is the second part of verse 4 and then on into verse 5. Notice, we pick up the new sentence right here. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Let's stop there in the sentence. Again, right in the middle of this text, you find the main thought. And it is, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. And then that produces all kinds of stuff. That's the main idea. So, what Paul shows us is not just the false teacher's attitude of conceited ignorance, but then also his desire. And what should we call his desire? Unhealthy craving. That's how Paul calls his desires. Unhealthy, a sick craving, literally. Now that cuts to the chase, isn't it? The Apostle Paul was never afraid to call things what they are. This teacher is sick. That's in, 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 the, in the traditional sense of the word. Right? Unhealthy craving. That, that's one word in the original language, and it means to be sick. To have an ailment of the mind. Think of it this way. This will put a little bit more picture on it. To be taken with interest in such things as to be diseased. To have a morbid fondness for something. I can't help it. This will put the picture in your mind. I don't know if I should mention this or not, but I think immediately of the Lord of the Rings and Gollum fondling his ring. That's this idea. right? Sick craving a sick craving and notice how paul describes and explains their sick craving it is evident by the object and product of their craving you know someone has a sick craving by what they crave they have a craving a sick craving because what they crave and what their craving produces in the church 
So first, letter A, the object of their craving, what is it? Controversy and quarrels about words. They actually enjoy, they like to argue and bicker and squabble. They crave controversy and quarreling because controversy and quarreling is one way that they get the attention from and control over people that they desire. Do you realize that? There, there, are, there are so many people in the world that enjoy picking a fight. Why? Because they control the atmosphere. Right? They can get a following that way. They control people that way. And it's, it's sick. Controversy, right? Debating, questioning to produce conflict, finding the subject that leads to the argument, quarrels about words, quibbles about words, word wars for the sake of contention or, or to twist the meaning of words and create doubt and confusion in people's minds or to wrangle about empty and trifling matters. Truly, they are using controversy and quarreling about words to push their own agenda, to gain influence, to control people, to promote their, their, their own <clears throat> desires, to produce godliness, their own sick doctrine. Now, let's mis- not misunderstand controversy. I want to qualify this, okay? Sometimes, and actually can be often, the more, the more depraved are the expressions of our culture. Sometimes, controversy and debate ensues because a teacher is truly seeking to promote the truth. Controversy isn't wrong in and of itself. It's what is the the reason for this controversy? Often the truth of Scripture and Christ unites people. There's nothing more unifying than truth. That's the priority. But sometimes truth divides people too, right? Believing and teaching truth may cause controversy, but that's not what's happening in this text. That's not what Paul's getting at. Controversy is not the result of the pursuit of and proclamation. This controversy is not the, the result of and the pursuit of and proclamation of Christ's truth, but rather, controversy is the goal. That's the desire. That's the objective. Controversy is the desired result of quarreling about words because then influence and control for selfish gain are increased. The false teacher would rather quarrel about words. Think about this. Think about the the decision that is being made here. The false teacher would rather quarrel about the words of truth than be gripped by them spiritually. They'd rather fight about them than be humbled by them before a holy God. They'd rather be fighting about them than become godly through them. They'd rather quarrel than rejoice in the truth. They'd rather quarrel than see sinners saved by the truth. He'd rather pursue controversy with the words of truth than exaltation of God, than than edification of the body, than evangelism of the lost. He's wasting his time spending it on controversy and word wars. And what's the result of that sick mishandling of the words of truth? Letter B, the product of their craving. This is what you see. There's, there's five words here. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction. 
when you get a man like this in the church, this is what the church will be like. Five words. Envy. Bitter feelings against other persons out of a desire for what the other has. A position, an ability, a relationship. One commentator put it this way. Resentment of other people's gifts. That's what a false teacher will produce. He's fighting the bad stuff and then you begin to see that those who don't have quite as eloquent of gifts become weak in that fight. And so they're like, oh man, I wish I was like them. I could hold my own. Dissension, strife, discord. The commentator, same commentator said, John Stott, quote, a spirit of competition and contention. The third word, slander, abusive speech, malicious talk, gossip against one another's character. Again, John Stott defines it as degrading words against rival teachers and believers for that matter. The fourth word, evil suspicions. Conjecture about another person's thoughts. Assuming the intentions behind another person's words or actions. And assigning evil to the other person's thoughts and intentions behind their words and actions. Boy, that's so dangerous in the body of Christ. John Stott defines it as forgetting that fellowship is built on trust, not Suspicion. And five, constant friction. That's continual contention. Incessant wrangling. Not just about doctrinal issues, but throughout all the aspects of body life. John Stott defines it as the fruit of irritability. Like everything becomes a problem. Trying to do body life. Well, when the false teacher is promoting his doctrine, you become irritable about everything because everybody's just on edge. And you know what makes perfect? It makes perfect sense that body life would come to this because when you do not live in unity under the absolute authority of Scripture, when your priority is not to know the truth and submissively unify under the sound words of Christ, when you do not operate on the settled and firm foundation of absolute truth for the glory of God, then you are inevitably operating on relative thought, human ideas for the self-centered agendas of human beings. And when you operate that way, it cannot, it cannot, no matter what the world says, it cannot result in a peaceful unity of trust and love, but in every man for himself disunity of full suspicion, bitterness, and irritability. You see, have you noticed this in our culture? There is this huge message that says, free thought, Free expression will bring peace. That is such a lie. Because it, they, and look, look, is it bringing greater peace? No, because then it's every man for himself. And then when you cross over someone else's free expression and thought, they get personally offended because you're attacking their identity instead of just an idea of thought. No, there's only one thing, dear ones, that can truly unite people in peace. You know what's that? The truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the false teacher has it all wrong and, and, and destroys the church by that. Have you ever come across someone like this? Someone who loves controversy and quarreling about words? They do not humbly revere the errant, the inerrant words of Scripture 
as they are given from the mouth of God. They do not eagerly pursue the perfect spirit-given meaning of each text. That's not their interest. They do not willingly desire to submit to the soul-searching ministry of the Scriptures to examine the thoughts and intentions of their heart and transform the sinner. They have a morbid fondness to find some sort of peripheral trifle of thought through a misuse of the words and bring up all kinds of questions to stir up contention and distract from the truth and what God's truth intends to accomplish for God's glory. That's what you see. You need to know that and be keenly aware of that profile. And have you ever experienced a church atmosphere like what's described here? Where most cannot agree on the doctrine, mission, and ministry direction of the church? They can't agree. Where so many of the inner workings of the body life end up, in turn, end up turning into an argument? Where gospel, where, where people live with Bitter feelings because of past hurts and grudges against others for holding positions that they want or having abilities that they wish they had? Have you ever been in a church environment like that? That's the result. It can be the result of false teaching. Have you ever stepped into this profile yourself? That's where we really need to think carefully. Have we ever been instrumental in creating such an atmosphere? Listen, dear brothers and sisters, it is too easy for us to take the truth that the Holy Spirit reveals to us in our self-centeredness and misuse it to fulfill our own selfish desires. Do we use what little knowledge we have of the truth to pursue argument with other people needlessly? Instead of seeking to patiently nurture them in the truth so that their reverence for God is increased and their likeness to Christ is developed? Do we use what little knowledge we have the truth to compete with others and seek to gain the praise of others or a position over others? Dear church family, please, by God's grace, let us be gripped by the glory of our God who is revealed in the truth and be broken before the greatness and goodness of Him who revealed Himself in love to such unworthy sinners as us. And may the truth humble us before our holy God and expose us as the weak, selfish people that we are so that we turn to Christ in childlike dependence. That's the response of the truth. And let's seek to handle the truth with the same intent that God has given it to us, which is to produce godliness in us, in all of us. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.5? He said, the aim of our charge is what? Love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of teaching. Christ-like love, purity in heart, a clean conscience because of godly living, and a sincere faith. That kind of handling of truth will produce godliness in us and a unity under the truth that brings glory to God and brings unbelievers to Christ. Now the final point this morning, number three, the false teacher's mind. 
What is behind this sick craving for controversy and quarrels about words? What is behind this conceited, ignorant attitude? It's like Paul goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the profile of the false teacher. And now this last piece. A false teacher's mind. Verse 5. People who are depraved in mind deprive the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So the description of the false teacher's attitude was conceited ignorance. The description of his desires, sick craving. Now, here's the description of the false teacher's mind. Right here. Depraved in mind. He's depraved in mind. What does that mean? Well, what's the mind? The mind is the faculty of perceiving, right? Understanding, reasoning, the faculty of determining, feeling, judging, purposing, <clears throat> even desiring. What's depraved mean? Corrupted, ruined, changed for the worse, destroyed, consumed. What's Paul implying? False teachers and their followers are unbelievers. That, that's what he's saying here. They're depraved in mind. They are still totally enslaved to their sinful nature and the devastating effects of the fall. That is exactly what Paul described. This is what the Scriptures describe. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that what? Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the description of an unbeliever. Romans 1.28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The unbeliever's mind, the one that is unaffected by the Holy Spirit, is so far from what God has created it to be. It's ruined. That's the way we all were before we came to Christ. And then the Holy Spirit renews our minds, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 3.11. This is the description of the depraved mind. No one understands. No one seeks after God. That's what Paul said. We have as, as, as hard and as raw as those words are, and as and even as we look at our unbelieving friends sometimes, they're like, they're not like that. That's what God says they are. That's what God says. And now the, the depraved condition of the false teacher's mind is made evident by these two symptoms that Paul brings out. First, deprived of the truth. Because of the condition of the depravity of their mind, they are deprived of the truth. They won't receive the truth. They cannot. They do not. In fact, this word deprived means to defraud, to rob, to spoil and Truly, it points out the work of Satan and the power that he has over the unbelieving world. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Describes this same mind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, In their case, the God of this world, that's, that's the evil one, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. 
What does that Satan-created blindness do to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of God who is the image of God? Can Satan do that? Yes. In God's mysterious sovereignty, He allows Satan to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the truth. That's why the false teacher with a depraved mind is deprived of the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18, again, we already said that verse. To the unbelieving, the word of the cross is what? Foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2. There's another text that describes this. says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You, you must have the Spirit of God in order to receive the truth of the Gospel for what it is and to have it affect your life. Verse 15, the spiritual, spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's the problem with the false teacher. He doesn't have the mind of Christ. The believer does. Isn't that wonderful gift in the Holy Spirit? The mind of Christ. I think of 1 John 5. I know these, these texts are disturbing to me too. 1 John 5. Nineteen and twenty. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The whole world, the system of unbelievers, lies in the power of the evil one. And the only way that we can know the truth and know Him who is truth is by the grace of God to change our minds. That's the idea. This is why the false teacher is the way he is. He's depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. And therefore, finally, he also has imaginations that view godliness as a means of earthly gain. Here we get to the heart of the whole matter, right? This is, this is the heart of it all. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The false teacher doesn't grasp the truth for what it is. He doesn't see God in Christ as the holy creator, king, judge, and savior that he is. He doesn't see himself as the sinner that he is in need of salvation through the truth. He doesn't see the goal of the truth that is to bring us to God and to make us godly. Instead, he sees religion and all the external practices of godliness as a means to another earthly end. That's huge. That's huge. He doesn't see God Himself. And God glorifying godliness as the end of revealed truth and salvation. That's not the end for Him. He turns it all upside down and makes the talk of God 
religion and external forms of godliness as a means to another end, the end of earthly, material, and worldly selfish gain. He wants praise. He wants money. He wants power. He wants influence. He wants control. He wants some sensual fulfillment, popularity, and earthly sensual experience that his deprived mind desires. One writer said, and I paraphrase, quote, he walks in the darkness following after the sound of praise and applause. End quote. That's the false teacher. Isn't this what Paul was guarded against himself? 2 Corinthians 2, 15-17, Paul said, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, the unbeliever, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, the believer, a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Notice verse 17. We, for we are not, like so many peddlers of God's Word. We're not selling God's Word to get something for ourselves. That's the false teacher. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. First Thessalonians 2, 3-6. Our appeal, Paul says, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Do you hear Paul's motives there? Oh, oh that God would give us motives like that. Dear ones, it's not, is not 1 Timothy 6, 5 a picture of idolatry? Isn't it? Isn't that what idolatry is? Using God, using God's Word, using God's church, using God's worship as a means to get something worldly for ourselves. Is that what it is? To use the things of God to harvest money and praise and popularity and applause and position and power over others. It's idolatry. God is the end Himself and all created things, other created things exist to know and enjoy Him. God will never stoop so low as to become the means to our worldly selfish ends. He is the end. He is the goal of all. To know Him. To enjoy Him. Well, you might say, I'd never do that. Yet, if you look in your heart, you may find there at least the seeds and thoughts of this idolatry. If you're honest, like I do, I have them. At least the desires to be praised for what you might know and be able to say about God and His truth. You ever have that seed desire in your heart? The desire to have a reputation that people admire to be applauded for what you know about God? What you can say about God? What you have done for God? May God deliver us from such idolatry of heart. And as He does, He'll be protecting us from following the profile of a false teacher. That's the seed. That's what's in the heart of the false teacher. And it grows into the 
the fruit and the tree of false teaching. Let us continually guard our hearts with all vigilance and turn to Christ whenever we see the desire to turn to God, to turn godliness into a means of selfish gain. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to make us aware of this idolatry and convict us of it and rid us of it for the sake of our own spiritual good, the good of Christ's church and the glory of God. The members of God's household must be keenly aware of the profile of a false teacher so that they can be guarded against following one or becoming like one. The attitudes, the desires, even the mind. May God protect us from that. All that Paul described in 1 Timothy as we close this morning, all that Paul described in 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 is described precisely in two other texts. 2 Peter 2, you can jot that down. And Jude 3-19. through As we conclude this morning, I want like us all to turn our Bibles to Jude, chapter chapter 1, Jude and verses 3 through 19. And I'm going to read this for our conclusion. I want you to notice all the things that we talked about from 1 Timothy. You'll see them here in this text, spelled out plainly. Listen as I read Jude, verse 3. Beloved, though I was very eager to write, about, write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, the false teachers who twist the gospel or make it turn the gospel into gain, earthly gain. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, other doctrine, right? Defile the flesh. Reject authority. Ungodliness and deny the words of Christ. And blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. There it is, right? And perished in Korah's rebellion. They wanted power. They wanted money. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. 
as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds. Promising big things and delivering nothing. Swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead. Uprooted. Wild waves of the sea. Casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. What does their teaching produce? Ungodliness. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain an advantage. There's the five descriptions Paul talked about. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. There's the depraved mind. But you, beloved, here's the remedy. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Here's the ultimate rescue. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Dear ones, listen, this is the answer to guarding against reflecting the profile of the false believer. Be bound to sound doctrine. Keep yourselves in love of God. Contend for the faith. And ultimately, it is Christ who will enable you to be presented blameless and keep you from stumbling. Keep turning to Christ in all things. Maybe you're here today and you're an unbeliever. You're like those described here. Those who doubt. Those who are right nearly in the fire because you have turned from the Gospel so far. You have followed maybe a false teaching. You are not born of God. You need to be saved. You need to be delivered from the fire before it's too late. And the only way is through Jesus Christ. Him who lived to give you righteousness. Him who died to give you atonement. Him who was raised to give you life forever. Turn to Christ. He is our only hope of eternal life and joy and safety. I'll read those verses again. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are grateful for these warning texts too. They give us a bleak picture, 
but a real picture. And yet we have great hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you. That you have all the power, Lord Jesus, to keep us and rescue us and present us. We ask that you would do that. You are our hope. We just turn to you in prayer right now as a church family. We turn our hearts to you. We see, we've seen the profile of the false teacher. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would keep us from stumbling into that error, into that attitude, into that desire, into that mindset. So that we one day would be presented blameless with joy before the Father. Save and sanctify us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.